Well, we've enjoyed our time here this weekend amongst you. It's been sweet to connect with fellow saints whose names before time were inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life, co-chosen, co-predestined, those who, like my flock back up in Arlington, regenerated and awakened by a sovereign work of God and the soul which enabled you to repent and believe and see the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ and place your trust in Him, to fellowship amongst the people also like me and my flock up in Arlington, co-purchased and paid for by the sin-bearing, substitutionary, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, provided for us forgiveness of sins and redemption and reconciliation to the Father as the treasure of our souls. It has been sweet to be among you this weekend. Thank you for being such great hosts to me and my family. It's been a delight uh, to preach about the fear of God, to my own personal study and pursuit to see that this is, this is, this is a massive issue. That fearing God isn't just one of many possible good responses to God, that in very much it summarizes all of the appropriate responses to God and His imponderable majesty and summarizes it in one word. Fear is faith. Fear is love. Fear is worship. It's been good to be with you. I'm grateful for Ken, what a shepherd that he is. I look to him uh, as a man who models what it looks like to be an exemplary shepherd. So thank you. Thank you for being such great hosts this weekend. And I want to say that showing up to worship is a risky thing to do. I don't know if you ever thought about that or not, but it's true. Showing up to worship the living God is a risky thing to do, and it might just be hazardous to your health if it is done incorrectly. Just ask Nadab and Abihu when God killed them at the tabernacle. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira when God killed them in church. Because you understand, don't you, what kind of God it is that we worship? That when people in Scripture encountered God, they almost died? That seeing God almost killed them? That to meet the God of the universe was a blunt force trauma to the soul that caused them to fear for their own safety. And I know we're not accustomed to speaking about God in this way, but the Bible is clear and unmistakable. Worship is the most weighty and significant and serious occupation on the face of the planet. It's not unjoyful by any means. It is definitely not that, but it is also not a game. Is it? Because of that, maybe, just maybe, instead of our Sunday best, maybe we should wear Kevlar suits and crash helmets to the service. Maybe the ushers, instead of offering plates, should hand out life preservers and signal flares. Maybe instead of bulletins or your new weekly that you're getting handed out, maybe instead they should hand you a medical release form before coming into worship. And maybe instead of a, a liturgy that walks through worship, maybe what they should do is give you safety protocols that shows you exactly where the exits are just in case. 
Instead of a welcome sign to our first-time guests, maybe we should put a sign outside that says, beware of the God. Enter at your own risk. Might not be a terrible idea to have paramedics on standby in an ambulance outside just in case something goes wrong. Now, I know that's exaggerated and that's ridiculous, but it does make a point, doesn't it? It makes a point that we oftentimes forget in our age of trying to make church as comfortable as possible for the consumer and the seeker. And the point is, worship of the living God is really serious business. And every once in a while, we need to be reminded of just who it is, the God that we worship. That the triune God is not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's not your peer. Yes, by all means, He is your friend. And in His Son, He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. But He is the kind of friend who caused you to exist, who demands your allegiance, who bought you with the blood of His Son, and who determines where you will spend your eternity. What that means, beloved, is that worship of the living God, matchless and supreme, is a potentially risky thing to do. And so that means we need to know what it is and how God wants it done. And most of all, who is this God who calls and commands us to worship? And this morning, that's exactly what Solomon does. He reminds us just who is this God that we worship, and if you know and remember, remember anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that this is not an easy book by any stretch of the imagination. It is full of knots and riddles and profound theological challenges. The digging is hard, the text is tough, the caves are deep, and Solomon, the author, does not yield his treasures easily to the reader. But in this strange-sounding book called Ecclesiastes, that's exactly what we have. Staggering theological treasures that you have never even imagined in your life. In fact, I want you to think about the book of Ecclesiastes in this way. What it is, is a theological mystery novel about the meaning of life. You see, it's there in your Bibles to persuade you that ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction is found only in God and that everything outside of Him is only a counterfeit. And you understand that a book like that, on the meaning of life, would not be complete unless it talked about worship. What worship is, because you understand the meaning of life and worship, we're talking about the exact same thing. And here's the thing about the book of Ecclesiastes is that everything leading up to chapter 5, you could say that it is philosophical and reflective and maybe a little bit mysterious, but you see everything changes in chapter 5, verse 1, because in chapter 5, verse 1, he begins to talk about worship, and when he does, the gloves come off and the glasses come off, and he leans in real, real close and says to us with a slight quiver in his voice, do you know who this God God is that you worship. Because you understand this thing called worship. This is no laughing matter because the object of our worship is no laughing matter. That doesn't mean that it's grim or joyless or cold or mechanical because that's not worship either. 
That's not worship either. No, worship engages the whole soul, you understand. It is the affections and the desires and the cravings. It's what we love and treasure and hunger for the most. No, you need to know worship is only worship when we are needy for God, when we are desperate for God, when we are satisfied in God, when we are exhilarated by God. That is worship. And what that means is that worship is not merely what we do on a Sunday morning, but rather it is about our very perceptions of what God is like, which means this is the most relevant topic in the universe. Because you cannot help worship someone or something. And so the question is, who or what do you worship? Who or what do you worship? Solomon will help us this morning. Not with soft serve, low calorie, hallmark card theology that makes us feel good, but lofty, exalted thoughts about God that make us rejoice and tremble. And so here we go. Here we go. Let's learn again what worship really is and what worship really isn't. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Kohelet, or the preacher, or the teacher, writes this. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And draw near to hear rather than offering the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word, and let not your heart be quick to bring forth a matter before God. Why? Because God is in the heavens, and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes with many cares, and the voice of the fool with many words. When you shall offer a vow to God, you shall not delay to fulfill it, for there is no pleasure in fools. What you vow, repay. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not repay. And do not allow your mouth to lead your body into sin. And do not say before a messenger, it is a mistake. Why should God become angry on account of your voice and why he, should He destroy the work of your hands? For in an abundance of dreams and many words is futility. Instead, fear God. This morning I want you to see from our text three exhortations. Three exhortations about authentic worship designed to help you fulfill the reason you exist. We're going big, we're going lofty, we're going all the way up. Three exhortations about authentic worship designed to help you fulfill the reason you exist and why you exist is worship. So here we go, exhortation number one. Exhortation number one, guard your heart and what you think about God. Guard your heart heart and what you think about God. Because I think it's very interesting, don't you, that anytime you want to do something 
remotely dangerous, you're required to take a class. There are gun safety classes. There are how to fly airplane classes. There are motorcycle safety classes, skydiving classes. There's classes on how to operate heavy machinery. My question is, what about a worship safety class? Where's a class on that? A class that teaches the finite how to approach the infinite. On how the temporal is to approach the eternal. On how the unclean is to encounter the holy one. Where's a class on that? That's the question. That's exactly what Solomon offers us in chapter 5. Again, again, we have to remember that if this is a book about the meaning of life, and it is, then it just makes sense that a book like that, he would include something on the essence of authentic worship. That's exactly what he does, because again, the meaning of life and worship, those two things are one and the same. That is the reason why we exist. The meaning of life is nothing less than worship of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. And believe it or not, worship is exactly what he's talking about in verse 1. Look at the text. He says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to here rather than offering the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now you see, when Solomon talks about going to the house of God, he's talking about the temple, isn't he? And in the Old Testament, if you're talking about the temple, you're talking about where God is. And if you're talking about where God is, you're talking about worship. And worship in the Old Testament was a physical location with an address. You remember that there was a special manifestation of the presence of God inside the temple. This was the most significant piece of real estate on the entire planet. Here is where the infinite God of the universe stooped down to meet with temporal, finite human beings. And so therefore Solomon says, watch your step. Be very careful and consider just what it is that you are about to do when you go to the temple. And when he says guard your steps, you know he's not talking about stubbing your toe or slipping on a banana peel or tripping on loose stones as you walk to the temple. Rather, he is talking about the condition of your soul. He's talking about getting your heart prepared to do just what it is that you are about to do. I mean, do, do, you, do you realize what you're doing? He says... Do you have any idea who the Almighty is? Do you know what it means for a finite human being to encounter the living God? Or when you go to church, or when you open your Bible, or when you pause to pray, or when you do anything, or go anywhere for that matter? Because you need to understand, God is there in that moment in the totality of His being. You can tell, you can tell that what he wants to create in you is that profound God consciousness that knows that in even your most secret, private moments, God is there in the totality of his majesty. That that no matter where you're standing, you're standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. God is there. So he wants you to examine your souls. He he wants you to to watch your hearts. He wants you to scrutinize your spiritual conditions so that you make absolutely sure that your secret contemplations about God are not only doctrinally accurate, but that they cause you to tremble. 
In other words, Solomon wants you to know that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because we become so secular and superstitious, don't we? We, we constantly revert back to our old paganism and our crude, vulgar ideas about God and we begin to make God back into our own image. And when we want to commit some sin, we go inside our homes, we close the door, we draw the blinds, and we walk down the hall, and we enter our room, and we close the door, and we shut off the lights, and we lay down, and we close our eyes, and, and in that moment, in the quiet, in isolation, in the dark, in the silence, we have the audacity to think that no one can see us. But lo, there is one who sees and He is closer to you even than your own skin. There's no such thing as a secular moment because God is there and God is real and God is everywhere. Therefore, guard your steps and consider very carefully just who it is that you are going to worship. And, and, and you know, don't you? You know, you know what it is that creates this profound God consciousness that never forgets that, that even your most private secret moments that God is there, you know how that's created in the soul, don't you? See, there's a name for that in the Bible. It's called reverence, or better, it's called the fear of God. And that doesn't mean scared of God. It means that who God is is so real to you that who He is shapes who you are in your most private secret moments when no one can see you except Him. And my question is, how do you get there in your life? Because we need to get there. We need to get there. That is the standard. That is the idea. We must get there. And the only way to get there in our lives is if the Word of God has made an impression on you. That's exactly where he goes next. Look again at verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Here it is. And draw near to hear rather than offering the sacrifice of fools for they have no idea that they are doing evil. That's very interesting, isn't it? You see, if worship is about drawing near to hear, and it is, then that implies that there is something to be heard. And there is something to be heard, namely what God has to say in His Word. That's exactly what Solomon means. You understand, don't you, that central to Old Testament worship was not only sacrifices presented, but the Scriptures proclaimed. The priests, the prophets... The scribes, even the king of Israel himself, had as one of their occupations the proclamation of God's word. Why? Because they rightly understood that the scriptures were the perpetual presence of Yahweh. That he led his people, he shepherded his people, he rebuked his people, he transformed his people through the perpetual proclamation and exposition of his holy word. Because this isn't just a piece of literature. This is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. If you want to hear God speak, all you need to do is read Holy Scripture. I believe Solomon wanted to breed a people 
who went hard after God. That he wanted to create a people who had an insatiable appetite to feast on the holy banquet of Scripture. That if you're going to worship, Solomon says, you'd better come hungry. You'd better come needy. It's deeper than our feelings. We see those posters of people on some prairie or some mountaintop with their arms stretched out wide. I'm rarely there. I'm rarely on a mountain because I'm in Texas. But, but I'm rarely in that place of euphoric emotion. Where I'm at is need. I am needy. My heart is slow. And worship is to come needy for God desperate to hear what the Almighty has to say in the sacred text. You need to show up on a Sunday morning like a patient on an operating table ready to receive surgery on the soul by the scalpel of Holy Scripture. You need to come to hear God speak, He says, and not offer the sacrifice of fools. Which is interesting, isn't it? Even fools go to church. See that in verse 1? Even fools offer sacrifices. Even they participate in worship. But Solomon calls it evil. He calls it evil. And the reason it is, is because it's not about God at all. It's about using God to get what they really want. And that's idolatry. You see, the fool's worship is that which wants forgiveness, but has zero intention of killing the sin that actually needs of actually killing the sin that needs to be forgiven. The fools worship. They, they show up and they sing and they listen to the Word of God proclaimed, but at the end of the day, they have zero interest in actually changing how they live their lives. The fools worship wants an emotional thrill and a mystical experience, but they have zero interest in living their lives, humbling themselves under the sacred text. The fool's worship is present in person. They're here physically, but their heart is far, far away daydreaming about all the things they would rather be doing than sitting here. A fool's worship is nothing more than cosmic bribery. A push-button vending machine superficiality that sees God merely as a means to get what they really desire, and it's not God. You see, what's missing in the worship of fools is that weak need, face to the ground, soul-trembling hunger for God as the feast and treasure of their soul. It's all just cultural and it's all just fake. My question for you is, do you see any of that in your lives? Do you perform the worship of fools? I'm not asking if you struggle to be focused or undistracted on a Sunday morning or reading your Bible. I'm asking, do you have authentic, affectionate passion and hunger for God? And what you have to understand is that how authentic hunger and passion for God is measured and manifested is in how you feel and respond to the sacred text of Holy Scripture. You understand, the only objective, verified way to evaluate authentic worship and faith is not our feelings or nor, nor our emotions, nor even our private experiences, but the quality of our connection to Holy Scripture. 
The question is, throughout the week and on Sunday morning, do you draw near to hear God speak? Do you understand that throughout the week and on Sunday morning that what you need most is to hear what the living God has to say in His Word? and what he has to say in his word through song, because you know what music is, what worship music is, don't you? It's theology put to music. Do you see in your life the gradually increasing reverence and submission to the word as the supreme authority and treasure of your life? That's the question. Which brings us to exhortation number two. Number two, watch your mouth and what you say to God. Watch your mouth and what you say to God. When I was a little kid, my dad told me that if you ever joked or talked about killing the president, that the government would hear about it, they would find out about it, and they would come and find you, and they would arrest you and put you in prison for life. And I remember being so terrified by that because I didn't know he meant like you shouldn't like say that like, you know, in a public place or you shouldn't say it like on the TV or the radio. I mean, you know, you you shouldn't do that. I I just thought he meant ever in any way, in any capacity. And, And so my point is I was so terrified by that that I couldn't even as a kid bring myself to talk about killing the president by myself in private as a joke. Who the government was made me watch my mouth even when in secret. And watching your mouth before God in worship is exactly what Solomon has in mind. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, Do not be hasty in word, and let not your heart be quick to bring forth a matter before God. Why? Because God is in the heavens and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes with many cares and the voice of the fool with many words. You can tell that if Solomon's talking about worship here, and he is, that he's talking here about prayer, isn't he? That that, that almost unbelievable act of worship where a delicate, fragile, created being speaks to the Creator who has more power than 10,000 neutron bombs because that's exactly what prayer is. And, And we just talk about prayer and we pray and we discuss prayer and we assume it to be a normal, regular part of our lives and absolutely it should be, but Solomon wants to pump the brakes just a little bit when it comes to prayer, not for the purpose of getting us to pray less, but to pause and consider just who it is, the one to whom we pray, and to teach us how to pray. Notice there in verse 2, Solomon has two prohibitions. Two prohibitions when it comes to prayer. He says, do not be hasty in word. There's one. Number two, let not your heart be quick to bring forth a matter before God. Why? Because God is in the heavens and you are on the earth. Don't, Don't be hasty in word, he says. Literally, do not be hasty with your mouth before God in this act of worship called prayer, meaning not that you have to be hesitant or timid 
or cowardly, or, or shy when talking to God. You, you don't need to do that, especially since Hebrews 4.16 tells us to approach the throne of grace with boldness. Boldness, he says, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As blood-bought believers on this side of the cross, we can, we should, we must be bold. The right to approach the living God and just ask Him for things was bought for us by the reconciling blood of Jesus Christ. A God this sovereign, a God this generous, the absolute right response is a reverent boldness that feels the freedom to ask Him for what we need. And yet you would agree, would you not? That there is a profound marked difference between being bold in prayer and being brash. You would agree, I'm sure, that there is a profound marked difference between being passionate in prayer and being presumptuous? Because that's exactly what he means. He's not saying you can't be passionate or that you can't be spontaneous in prayer, nor that you can't be urgent or desperate or even persistent in prayer because all of those things are commanded elsewhere in the Bible. But rather what Solomon means by hasty, get this now, is rushed, hurried, flippant, and thoughtless prayer. He's talking about impulsive, rash, impetuous prayers. A kind of cavalier approach to God that makes all sorts of demands on Him, but does not for one moment consider the fact that He holds the entire universe into being by the word of His power. Hasty prayer is not only the kind that goes through the motions, speeds through a list of items and checks a box, but is also the kind of prayer that is pushy and demanding and forgets that this is a God whose glory is so radiant that even angels tremble in His presence and shield their eyes from the splendor. Bottom line, what Solomon wants to know is, do you pray like God is actually there? And that He's real. And that He's a person. And that He's your Father. And that He's the greatest treasure in the universe. Do you pray like that? That's the question. And He's not saying that the way you pray has to be perfect or profound or polished or poetic. He's just saying one of the things it can never be is hasty. Are you hasty in prayer with the God of the universe? Pushy in prayer, flippant in prayer, thoughtless in prayer with the God of the universe. Because notice what Solomon says next. Not only should you not be hasty, but also let not your heart be quick to bring forth a matter before God. And you see it, don't you, how Solomon proceeds from the mouth to the heart? And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because those two, those two things are inseparably connected. The mouth and the heart, there's a direct circuit between those two things. The true desires of your soul are most clearly displayed in the way that you pray. And when he says not to quickly bring up a matter before God, he doesn't mean, he does not mean that you have to be hesitant or fearful or cowardly as if God's going to be irritated if you ask Him for something. No, Christ was clear with us in Matthew 7, wasn't He? 
You need to ask in prayer. You need to seek in prayer. You need to knock in prayer. Those are present tense imperatives. Be asking, be seeking, be knocking, be generous. God loves to provide for you. Let that be said. What he means, however, is don't assume that the first thing that pops into your head is the thing that you should ask for. He means, don't use prayer as a tool to get what you want more than God. Don't make prayer an instrument of idolatry. Don't just barge in and start making all these demands on God as if His only agenda is to, is to cater to your whims and your appetites and your desires like some cosmic genie. Or some heavenly Santa Claus that you meet once a year but with whom you have no relationship. Because when we use prayer to get what we want more than God, we mutilate the purpose for why prayer exists. And notice what Solomon does. Look at his logic there in verse 2. Notice what it is theologically that we need to keep in our minds that prevents us from abusing the purpose of prayer. Look what he says. Be slow to bring up a matter before God. Why? Here it is. For God is in the heavens and you are on the earth. Therefore, conclusion, let your words be few. Do you see the logic? The reason that you don't just barge in on God and start making demands on Him like He's some sort of customer service agent is because He is in the heavens. In other words, He has absolute supremacy over everything. To be in heaven does not refer so much to His distance from us so much as it refers to His supremacy over us. This is his transcendence. He, he is lofty and exalted and matchless and supreme. And here we are on the earth, created and temporal and finite and contingent, living on one little planet in the corner of a galaxy in a universe in which exist millions of other planets and galaxies, which doesn't mean prayer doesn't exist, but it does mean that how we pray should be deliberate and it should be intentional. I mean, do you realize who it is you are praying to? I mean, the supremacy of God changes things, doesn't it? And Solomon's application of the supremacy of God in prayer is very simple. It's very direct. Look what he says. Therefore, let your words be few. Which doesn't refer to the quantity of your words so much, so much as it refers to the quality of your words, the authenticity of your words. Solomon's objective here is clearly to transform the way that, that you pray. We could see that, can't we? The cure, he wants us to see that the cure for cold-hearted, mind-wandering prayer that is pushy and demanding and casual and cavalier is to be gripped by the towering heights of the majesty of God. 
And you understand, don't you? You understand, this is very important that you get this. You understand that hasty prayer is the result of hasty reading. Or no reading at all. And by that I mean the reading of Holy Scripture. What I mean is, we always, 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 without exception, reflect our theology in the way that we pray. Our view of God is displayed in the way that we pray. Our prayers we o- will only be as passionate as our view of God is profound. Our prayers will only be as delightful as our view of God is deep. The secret, therefore, to all of our prayer problems and struggles without exception is the careful, unrushed, glad-hearted, methodical contemplation of who God is from the pages of Holy Scripture. So if you want authentic, dependent, passionate prayer, and I know you do, then you must get your soul staggered by the supremacy of God in the sacred text. You just go to Exodus 34 and Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 40 and Jeremiah 10 and Ezekiel 1 and and Romans 9 and Revelation 1 and you you just spend a month there. Seriously. You just spend a month there, two months, reading and meditating and getting your mind blown by the majesty of God and mark my words. You do that long enough and it will begin to change the way that you pray. And speaking of changes to our prayer life, there's a few that Solomon has in mind here, or a few that he's especially concerned about. Look at verse 3. He says, For the dream comes with many cares, and the voice of the fool with many words. I know what that looks like and sounds like. It doesn't look like it has anything to do with prayer, but it does. The point is really practical. It's really profound. He, he just said, didn't he, that in light of God's supremacy, let your words be few. In other words, let your words be intentional and very carefully chosen. That was his point. The reason is why. Why? What's his reason? For the dream comes with many cares. Meaning what? Dreams meaning what? Not the dreams you have at night, but the dreams you have during the day. He means daydreams, fantasies, the big plans that people make for their lives to, to be accomplished or rich or married or, or happy and, and famous or successful. He means, get this now, he means things other than God to which people look to satisfy their deepest longings instead of God. That's what he means. And the point is, those things, the problem with those kinds of dreams is that Solomon says they come with many cares, meaning the things to which we look other than God do nothing but bring burdens and anxiety to our lives. Did you know that? Idols are thrilling, but they come with a cost, many costs, one of which is that they only bring anxiety and weight and fear to our lives. That's what he's talking about. The question is, do you have anything like that in your life? Usually where anxiety and fear exist is because an idol is lurking. 
Because here's the point. When we get fearful and anxious for things other than God, we turn prayer into an instrument of idolatry. And so his point is what delivers us, what delivers us from abusing and mutilating the purpose of prayer is in fact the supremacy of God. Do you see? Why? Because when God is prized as supreme, you will not seek things other than Him to take His place. There's a second change, however, that the supremacy of God makes to our prayer lives. Look what he says. He says, for the dream comes with many cares and the voice of the fool with many words. Which is surprising, isn't it? Even fools Pray to God. And yet the way they pray, Solomon says, is with many words. They pray with many words, which by itself is not a problem. That's not a problem. We should pray often. We should pray lots and throughout the day, which necessitates the use of lots and lots of words. That is not a problem in and of itself. The point is, fools say so much, but really they say so very little. Or maybe we should put it this way, fools may pray so much, but really, they pray so very little. I think he means fools think that by their many words, they will be heard. They recite their lists. They've got their little prayer cliches and platitudes. They've got their canned formulas and their pious-sounding phrases that they repeat again and again, and they think that by their many words they have done something pious and spiritual. But you see, what God really cares about is the quality of those words, the urgency of those words, the intentionality of those words, the reality of those words. Quantity too. It's both and, not either or, but especially the quality And this point is very simply, don't miss it. The point is, the supremacy of God produces sincerity in prayer. The more we savor God in the soul as majestic, the more our prayers to Him will be authentic. The question is, how is your prayer life right now? Because prayer is worship. And I know it kind of hits below the belt here, but I mean, we can say what we want to about ourselves, right? And we can present whatever version of ourselves we want other people to see. But the reality is, at the end of the day, who we really are is who we are before God in prayer. And so if prayer is a struggle for you, or, or if it's non-existent, for you. I just want you to know there is a solution. There is help for you. There is hope for you. The secret, not exaggerating, the secret to pleasurable, passionate, and persistent prayer, get this now, is meditation on Holy Scripture. You knew I was going to say that, but it's still true. That's the secret. You have to understand that the fires of worship and prayer are produced in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. Thomas Watson the Puritan nailed it. 
when he said the reason why our prayers are cold is because they are not first warmed by the fires of meditation. You understand, the one who meditates much prays much. The one in who meditates well prays well because meditating on the Scriptures is the fuel that creates the fires of worship and prayer in the soul. Which brings us to exhortation number three. Exhortation number three about authentic worship. Number three, watch what you promise and what you vow to God. Watch what you promise and what you vow to God. And this will go quick, but let me say this, that every wedding I've ever done, I always tell the couple that, whose wedding I'm officiating, I tell them just before the vows that what they are about to do in saying these vows to one another is literally of eternal significance. That these, fa- these vows are not just a formality that gets you to the kissing part. These are non-negotiable promises that you are making to one another before the God of the universe. And once you make them, you cannot unmake them. And speaking of vows and commitments, that's exactly what, God is talk- what Solomon is talking about. Look at verse 4. He says, when you make a vow to God, you shall not delay to fulfill it, for there is no pleasure in fools. What you vow, repay. And he goes on to say, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not repay. And you have to understand that vows were just a normal part of Old Testament worship. Right? And, and a vow is what it sounds like. It was a promise and a pledge, something that you were, you were saying you were going to do and be for God. And strange though it may sound to us, vows are also a part of New Testament worship. You may not believe that, but that's true, because here's the question. Have you ever told God in prayer or through the lyrics of a song that you would follow Him? Or that you would trust Him? And that you would never leave Him? Did you not tell God in some form at your conversion that did you not tell Christ that your life was His to do with as He pleased? Have you ever told God, promised God that you would never do this or that thing ever again? I mean, do you realize what you have done? You have made a vow. And you make a vow and promise to God you had better keep it. And I think he makes, makes clear here, look again at verse 4, when you make a vow to God, you shall not delay to keep it. When you make a vow, I think it's clear, you don't actually have to make vows. Those are made voluntarily. No one's going to put a gun to your head and force you to make one. But once you do, you are thus obligated to keep it. And notice what he says, don't delay to keep it. Don't, don't delay to keep your vows because vows are not a game. This is not a joke. Promises to God are not theoretical. These are real. This isn't some layaway payment plan where gradually over time we fulfill what we vowed to God. No, you make a promise and vow to God. You had better keep what you vowed. Why? Because there's no pleasure in fools. I think the issue is, and this is so important for us, with all of our talk nowadays about a relationship with God, I mean, do we actually think that the words that we say to God in prayer and in our worship, that they don't matter? I mean, isn't that how a relationship works? That you make a vow and a promise to someone that the person to whom you made the promise actually expects you to keep what you promised? I mean, God doesn't have lower standards than human beings, does He? 
I mean, you, you can tell what Solomon wants to do. He is on a mission to exterminate all pretentious, half-hearted, superficial religiosity that God is real and what we say to God matters. And he's got some other thoughts about vows and promises and pledges here that are worthy of contemplation for another time. But, but here's, here's the thing, and let me close with this. What all this talk about vows and, and being serious about what you vow and pledge and promise to God, what this does is this raises a question, at least in Solomon's mind, as to what authentic worship really is. Because that's the question, is it? What is authentic worship? And how is that produced in the soul? That's the question that Solomon asks and answers. What is authentic worship really and how is it produced in the soul? Because you remember the worship wars of the 1980s. you remember those? It was before my time, but I heard about the worship wars. When churches went to the mat, they went to battle over traditional versus contemporary. Hymns versus praise songs. Whether drums and electric guitars should be allowed in the church. And yet calling that the worship wars is severely misleading because what it really was was the preference wars, the opinion wars. It, it wasn't, that wasn't about worship at all. It was about people's preferences and, and opinions and, and, and cultural sacred cows. And it totally missed the point. Solomon, the inspired writer of Scripture, does not miss the point. He tells us, he tells us in verse 7, he drills down past all the preferences and externals and opinions and cultural sacred cows into the essence of what authentic worship is. In fact, to make his promise stronger, he tells us first what worship is not before he tells us what it is. Look at verse 7, see if you can tell the difference. In many, in the abundance of dreams and many words is futility, instead fear God. Can you hear the difference between authentic worship and false worship? And, and I know that statement sounds cryptic because it's a proverb, it's poetry, it's meant to be mysterious, but can you see what worship is and what it is not? Worship, he says, is not many dreams and it's not many words. Many dreams meaning what? Again, he's talking about daydreams. Mystical, devotional, non-theological thoughts that make us feel good but have no substance, that is not worship. Nor is worship many words, he says. Meaning just a, a stream of pious phrases which trifle with the sovereign, which trifle with the holy. That's not worship either. What does Solomon call that? Look at the text. What does he call it? He calls it futility. He calls it vanity. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's worthless. It has no value. It has no substance. It, it doesn't mean a thing to God. And so help us, Solomon, as we close here, help us. What is authentic worship? And how is it produced in the soul? Help us. Solve the debate for us. Solve the worship wars. And yet the answer to the question, I'm afraid, is quite unpalatable to many people 
who sit in churches today. But it's only unpalatable to them because they don't know what it means to tremble before God as the treasure of the soul. It's only unpalatable them because they have not tasted the raw, delicious terror of the God who never had a beginning. It's only unpalatable to them because they have not grasped the towering majesty of God, the Himalayan heights of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. It's only unpalatable to them because they have not yet discovered that the essence of authentic worship is to see and savor the triune God for the treasure that He is. Because all of that is precisely what Solomon means when he tells us to fear God. That's worship. Fearing God is authentic worship. It's not candles or robes or chanting, or atmosphere, or lighting, or buildings, or altars, or cathedrals, or traditions, or mood, or ambiance, or yelling, or shouting, or streamers, or dancing. No, the essence of authentic worship is to tremble before God as the treasure of your soul. In other words, it is fearing God. Listen carefully. As divinely chosen blood-bought, spirit-awakened believers adopted by the Father through His Son, fearing God is not a terror of His wrath, but a trembling before His worth. Do you hear the difference? The fear of God is the appropriate response to who God is in all of His uncreated majesty and towering supremacy. The question is, is that how you feel about God? Is that how you think about God? Is that how you respond to God? Do you fear Him? Do you tremble before Him at any level as the treasure of your soul? Because maybe you don't know God at all. Maybe you are still estranged from this God and an enemy of this God because you still languish in your sin and unbelief. And if that's you, you should be scared of God. And yet you should marvel at the infinite mercy of God who kept you alive again. Again, another day to hear again the gospel of His Son. That He took the wrath He didn't deserve for sins He didn't commit. Not merely as a kind gesture. Or to be some martyr. But as a sacrifice. As a sin-bearing substitute. That should you repent and trust Him. Should you yield to Him in glad-hearted submission and faith. That the salvation, the treasure of salvation He bought with His blood. Will get transferred to your bankrupt spiritual bank account. Should you repent and trust Him. In the Lord Jesus Christ, the infinite saving achievements of His death become yours in full. And you get reconciled to God as a prize of infinite delight. 
In other words, you become a worshiper. And Solomon has made it plain as day, hasn't he? That the worship of the living God is the most serious and sacred and significant and superb and superior and satisfying business in the universe. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for making us pause. Thank you for Solomon making us slow down and pause and consider and contemplate just very carefully who you are. Oh Lord, help us, help us to slow down, to meditate deep on the text, to think deep thoughts about you, not to earn degrees or diplomas, but to learn how to tremble before you as the treasure of our souls. And we're grateful for this time together. In your son's mighty name we pray. Amen.